We are continuing our sermon series on the book of Proverbs, and we are considering some of the most significant themes or subjects addressed in the book of Proverbs. Our subject this morning is marriage. And whether we are married or not, marriage is inescapably an important part of our lives and an important institution for the world in which we live. While the idea or institution of marriage is inescapably important, the practice of marriage is inevitably hard. Every marriage involves the coming together of two sinful people. In light of the importance and challenges of marriage, many people have offered their insights, pithy sayings, jokes, and words of wisdom on the subject. For example, Socrates said, by all means marry. If you get a good wife, you'll become happy. If you get a bad one, you'll become a philosopher. The poet Ogden Nash said, to keep your marriage brimming with love in the wedding cup. Whenever you're wronged, admit it. Whenever you're right, shut up. Agatha Christie said, an archaeologist is the best husband a woman can have. The older she gets, the more interested he is in her. (laughs) And last, but certainly not least, the brilliant and well-spoken actor Will Ferrell offered his advice for someone considering marriage. He said, before you marry a person, you should first make them use a computer with slow internet to see who they really are. As great as these insights and words of wisdom are, our concern this morning is, what does God have to say about marriage? Specifically, what does God say about marriage in the book of Proverbs? And how does it relate to what he says about marriage in the rest of Scripture? Before we jump in, I think we can be honest about the fact that when we consider everything taking place with marriage in the world around us today, and even in the church, it might be easy for us to become discouraged by the bad news, and understandably so. We can lament the high divorce rate, the increasing number of people choosing cohabitation instead of marriage, the number of marriages in serious turmoil, or the redefining of marriage as anything other than the covenant union of a man and a woman. Certainly the goodness of God's design and purpose for marriage seems to have fallen on hard times. Nonetheless, my hope for us is that we will not be defined and characterized by discouragement and a negative attitude about the current state of marriage. I think one of the most important ways, if not the most important way, we must respond to the challenges facing marriage is not to spend all our energy denouncing what we are against, but joyfully affirming in demonstrating the goodness of God's design and purpose in marriage. When we apply the truth of God's word to our thinking, whether we are married or not, and when we apply his word to our marriages for those of us who are married, we will bear witness to God's goodness and glory. 
And I believe the book of Proverbs helps us to that end. When studying Proverbs, the first thing we should notice is that Proverbs has a high view of marriage. Meaning, marriage is spoken of in a way that communicates that it is good and important. For example, in Proverbs 18.22, we read, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And Proverbs 19.14 says, House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. We see that a good wife is a gift from the Lord. He is the giver of good gifts, and he gives this good gifts because marriage is a good thing created and established by God. In Proverbs chapter 2, verse 17, the woman who commits adultery is described as one who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. To forsake marriage by committing adultery is not only a sin against one's spouse, but also an egregious offense against the Lord, which speaks to the importance of marriage in his eyes. In Proverbs, the Lord affirms the goodness of marriage and the seriousness of forsaking marriage. As we have seen throughout this sermon series, the book of Proverbs is heavily influenced by the first five books of the Bible, which are often referred to elsewhere in Scripture as the law. It is not surprising, therefore, that Proverbs describes marriage as a good thing, as Genesis describes God as the author of marriage. When God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, he said that it was good. As a matter of fact, in Genesis 1, God declared his creation to be good seven times. The seventh and final time came after he created the man and the woman, and he observed that all his creation was very good. Genesis 2 provides another perspective on God's work in creation and reveals how the man was created first. One of the things that stands out is that after he created the man and before he created the woman, God identified something as not good. In Genesis 2.18, we read, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. The first time the Lord identified something as not good was when he looked upon the man and saw that he was alone. Of course, the Lord had a remedy for this. The Lord created the woman, a helper, suitable for him. The man and the woman were created in such a way that they fit together. They were similar enough to enjoy companionship and yet distinct enough to complement one another. The complementary nature of the man and the woman provided the basis for God's design in marriage. Here's what we read in Genesis chapter 2, verses 20 through 24. The man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, 
and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it, closed up its place with the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. God designed the man and the woman. He created them similar and different. He created them in such a way that they would come together in the one flesh union, which is his good idea. He designed marriage in such a way that a man is to leave his family to create a new family by holding fast to his wife, never letting go after they are joined together. Genesis 2.24 provides the foundation for all of Scripture's teaching on marriage. Indeed, all of Scripture has a high view of marriage reflecting God's design and purpose. We also see this in the way that God rendered judgments on his people when they failed to have a high view of marriage. We see this in the book of Malachi. In the book of Malachi, the prophet whom the book is named after was sent to bring a series of charges against the Jews who had returned to Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile. These Jews had returned to Jerusalem after Nehemiah had rebuilt the walls and after the temple had been restored. The people living there were lax in their worship of the Lord. They were not walking in a way so as to be faithful to the covenant that God had established with them. And they were airing out their grievances against the Lord. And so the Lord sent Malachi to bring these disputes against the Lord's people, to call them repentance for specific ways they were failing to walk in a right relationship with the Lord. And one of the charges brought against them involved their disregard for marriage. Listen to the words of Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. The Lord condemns the men who have been faithless to their wives. He said, she is your companion and wife by covenant. In verse 15, he made a reference back to Genesis. 
Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? God created marriage as a covenant, a one flesh union between a man and a woman that he blesses with his Spirit. When the prophet confronted the Jewish people, he contrasted their disregard for marriage with God's high view of marriage based on his design and purpose. Similarly, when Jesus was asked about divorce in Matthew 19, he also pointed back to Genesis chapter 2 in his answer. He was asked, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? In verses 4 through 6, we read, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus pointed to creation, specifically the creation of male and female, to explain God's design and intention for marriage. Jesus affirmed that marriage was created by God to be a permanent one-flesh bond of husband and wife. He attributed the joining together of a husband and wife to God. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Much more can be said about this, but for now we see that all Scripture including Jesus, affirms the goodness and importance of marriage. So too does Proverbs. God's creation of marriage and his design for marriage underscores the wisdom in Proverbs regarding marriage. But before we take a closer look at Proverbs, I want to clarify that the Scripture's high view of marriage does not at all diminish the value of singleness. Rather, Scripture also holds singleness in high regard as well. Singleness, as a follower of Jesus, involves living a celibate life for the glory of God. The Apostle Paul was single and commended the benefits of remaining single in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. At one point, he said he wished everyone was as he was in this regard. Jesus, the most complete whole person to ever live, was single and commended singleness in Matthew 19. And so we see that while the Scripture has a high view of marriage, Scripture also has a high view of singleness. It is not either or. Some who are single will live the single life the entirety of their lives. Some who are single are single for a season until they're married. Some who are single are single because they've experienced a painful divorce. Some are single because they've lost a spouse. Whatever the case, while marriage is held in high regard, singleness is not a lesser status in the church. We all equally belong to God's family, and we are all able to do the work of the ministry and display the glory of the gospel 
in whatever station the Lord has placed us. And so we see scripture have a high view of marriage. And therefore, we all, whether we are single or married, are to have a high view of marriage. We also see that marriage has a, or the Bible has a high view of singleness. So we all, whether we are single or married, are to have a high view of singleness. To see the value and the goodness of both. With that said, Proverbs helps us joyfully affirm and demonstrate the goodness of God's design and purpose for marriage by providing a high view of marriage. And I think the question we should ask is, what is the emphasis in Proverbs regarding marriage? What wisdom is provided? I think two things stand out when, re when reading through the book. And the two things are faithfulness, and peace. The book speaks emphatically and repeatedly about the importance of faithfulness and peace. First, we will consider faithfulness. Proverbs speaks negatively and positively about faithfulness in marriage. It speaks negatively in the sense that we read about the consequences of unfaithfulness. It speaks positively in the sense that we read about the benefits of faithfulness. We've already seen this in the first nine chapters of the book where there are many warnings against adultery. When the Lord gave the law through Moses at Mount Sinai, one of the Ten Commandments was, do not commit adultery. Why was it so important to be included in the Ten Commandments? Adultery is the forsaking of one's spouse. It is a betrayal of the marriage covenant. It is a violation of the one flesh union. Moreover, we are made in God's image and are called to reflect his character and nature. When we are unfaithful, we are betraying the fact that God is faithful. Proverbs picks up on the importance of God's command in Exodus and uses powerful language to warn against adultery. We see it in chapter 2 and more extensively in chapters 5, 6, and 7, with language that speaks of adultery as a matter of life and death. Brothers and sisters, we do well to heed the warnings and consider the dangers of unfaithfulness. I want to encourage you, don't be content with merely not committing the act of adultery. When we take the warnings of Proverbs seriously, we will also guard our eyes. Faithfulness involves the guarding of our eyes. Jesus said, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So we guard our eyes, how we look at others, what we look at on the computer, what we watch on TV. We need to guard our eyes as a matter of faithfulness. When we take the warnings of Proverbs seriously, we will guard our emotions so that we do not become emotionally intimate with someone other than our spouse. Taking the warnings seriously regarding unfaithfulness also involves guarding our emotions. Wisdom involves diligently applying the warnings of unfaithfulness. And while we are warned against unfaithfulness, we are also encouraged to 
Be faithful. In Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 through 17, we read, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. In these verses, we are exhorted to sexual fidelity. Drinking from your own cistern refers to enjoying sexual intimacy with the one to whom you are committed in marriage. On the one hand, Proverbs warns strongly against marriage outside of the marriage relationship. On the other hand, it speaks positively regarding sexual intimacy within the context of the marriage relationship. And in verses 18 through 20, we read, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? Embrace the bosom of an adulteress. Proverbs clearly differentiates between sexual immorality and sexual intimacy in the way that God has designed it. Faithfulness involves actively rejoicing in your spouse, delighting in your spouse, and being intoxicated in the love of your spouse. We are to pursue faithfulness by cultivating and enjoying this kind of intimacy. And as we do this, we remember that faithfulness in marriage reflects God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. Faithfulness is necessary to maintain the one flesh union between husband and wife, which glorifies God. You can't read Proverbs and miss the warnings against unfaithfulness. You can't miss the goodness and the exhortations to be faithful. The second thing we see emphasized is peace. Peace in marriage refers to unity, harmony, oneness, and togetherness. It is the opposite of strife, contention, discord, and conflict. Of course, every marriage is going to experience conflict, difficult seasons. We are sinners. And every single one of us has blind spots. Every one of us has areas of sin in our own life that we are blind to. We are all capable of being deceived. Sin is deceptive. Our hearts are deceptive. And so we all need to be aware that as we are married to a sinner, we too are sinners. We are capable of being deceived. We have blind spots and we need the Lord's help to reveal those to us. And as followers of Jesus, we understand the need to resolve conflicts in a Christ-honoring way and pursue peace. 
One of the ways peace is emphasized in Proverbs is the repeated warnings and indictments of quarrelsome behavior. Here are a few examples. Chapter 21.9 says, It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. And 21.19 says, It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. In 26.21 we read, As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. In chapter 15, verse 18 says, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. A hot temper stirring up strife and quarrelsome behavior, whether that's the husband or the wife, are strongly condemned. This type of behavior is antithetical to pursuing peace and is often the result of focusing on getting what you want or being angry about what you're not getting. Quarrelsome behavior is the opposite of selflessness, seeking the good of the other. Repenting of quarrelsome behavior is essential to pursuing peace. In addition to turning from quarrelsome behavior, how else do we pursue peace? We've already seen that being slow to anger quiets contention. To pursue peace in marriage, we must be slow to anger and slow to take offense. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. I will say that the wisdom of this verse has been made more evident to me by my own examples of being quick to take an offense and seeing how that creates problem where there really was no problem. Overlooking offense does not mean suppressing our feelings or avoiding difficult conversations, but it does mean that we slow down that we ask the Lord to help us remain calm, to not respond quickly with anger, to not focus on how we have been wronged. It requires us to slow down when we take, rather than taking quick offense and seek to understand why we took offense. To pursue peace in marriage, we must be humble and gentle. Chapter 15, verse 1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And 15.4 says, A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Gentleness is profound and powerful. Never underestimate the power of gentleness in pursuing peace. Are you able to practice gentleness even when you are having a difficult discussion? Are you able to be gentle with your words? Are you able to be gentle with your tone? Are you able to be gentle with your approach even in those hard, difficult, heated 
moments. Gentleness is evidence that you are more concerned with understanding and peace than proving you are right or winning an argument. Gentleness requires humility. If you will be gentle, you need humility to avoid being defensive. You need humility to put to death your desire to prove that you are right. And you need humility to grow in your desire to listen and understand. Humility and gentleness go hand in hand. When we do humble ourselves and practice gentleness, we are much more likely to enjoy the benefits of peace. In Proverbs 15, 17, we read, Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. In chapter 17, verse 1 says, Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Peace is better than the best food and the best feast. Peace is better than going on the best vacations. Peace is better than having the best stuff. You can have very little, but if you have peace, you will enjoy it. Because we are sinners, we must work to live at peace with, with one another. But we do so from a place of security because Jesus has done the work to restore our peace with God. In Romans 5.1 we read, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the most important peace that we need. Without Christ, we do not have peace with God. We are by nature sinners. And therefore, by nature, we are enemies of God, at enmity with Him. Friend, if you are not a Christian, that describes your present state, the state of your relationship with God. You see, even though God created us in His image to know Him, to love Him, to obey Him, to glorify Him, we have all sinned against Him. We have all turned our backs and rebelled against Him, causing conflict and strife and enmity in our relationship with Him. And therefore, we are deserving of judgment. But God has provided a way to restore our relationship with Him to restore our peace with Him. Again, it is the most important peace that we need. And it is a peace that Jesus accomplished for us. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And He did so by living a perfectly sinless life. And by dying on the cross to take the punishment for our sin in our place. So that everyone who believes in Christ will receive the forgiveness of sins. And with the forgiveness of sins, our relationship with God is restored. And we enjoy peace with Him. If you're not a Christian, our hope and our desire for you is that you will 
trust in Christ for your salvation. That you too will recognize that like us, you need your sins to be forgiven. You need peace with God to be restored. That only comes through faith in Christ. If you're not a Christian, believe in Christ. Turn from sin. Be saved. And enjoy peace with God. For those of us who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we do have peace with God. We have peace with God, and therefore we are able to pursue peace with one another from a place of security, knowing that the most important peace we need has been secured for us. As those who have peace with God, we are called to live at peace with one another. And if you are married, that includes pursuing peace with your spouse. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Make peace. Work for peace. Pursue peace. As we actively pursue faithfulness and peace in our marriages, we will display the goodness and the glory of God's design and purpose in marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, a mystery is revealed. And the mystery involves the deepest meaning of marriage. In the passage, Paul instructs wives to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. He instructs husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He then tells them that these instructions are important because marriage is meant to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. The most glorious purpose of marriage is to put the gospel on display by portraying the relationship of Christ and the church as the wife joyfully submits to her husband and as the husband joyfully sacrifices and gives himself up for his wife. Eric Raymond writes, God displays his love. That is, he puts it on display. He broadcasts it. How does he do this? He does it through the gospel. And God does this in two ways, through Jesus, the husband, and the church, the bride. Jesus is the perfect son of God. He has never sinned for even a moment. He is the one whom has beheld the face of his father throughout all eternity. He perfectly reflects the glory of God. It is he who comes to live, die, resurrect, and reign. But for whom does he do this. He does this for his bride. However, she is not all dolled up in gowns of good deeds, but in the shoddy rags of unrighteousness. In this very context, we learn much about who Jesus died for by her description. They are weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies. Nothing says commitment more than death. Jesus gave everything for his bride. The death of Christ upon the cross was for his bride, the church. This is the ultimate commitment. 
Further, he made promises. You might even say vows to her. He says that he will come back for her. He says that he will bring her to himself throughout all eternity. He says that no one can snatch his people out of his hands. He says that he will be with her all the way to the end of the age. Christian marriage then reflects the gospel and that a husband and wife love each other even though they are imperfect because God has shown this love to each of them. They are motivated by grace to love one another. So you see, we have a great and glorious purpose in marriage, and it points to an even greater marriage, the marriage that we all benefit from. And we look forward to the consummation of that marriage, which we read about in the book of Revelation, when we will be forever joined to Christ in his kingdom for all of eternity. And so with that in mind, we seek to glorify God in our understanding of marriage, what we say about marriage, and for those of us who are married, how we live out our marriages. And as we follow the wisdom of Proverbs, our marriages will better portray the glory of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you reveal to us and make known to us in your word. We pray that our thinking, our attitudes, our perspectives, our words, our deeds will be shaped by your word. We pray this specifically for our understanding of marriage. Help us to rightly understand and view marriage through your word. For those of us who are married, help us to rightly apply your word to our marriages. We pray, Lord, that you will be a people who are glorified among us. We pray that we will put the goodness and the glory of the gospel on display. Help us to walk in repentance and humbly apply your word to our hearts, to our lives. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.